0: Good morning. It's eight thirty on Monday, June twenty-first. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Freedom Ride for Voting Rights tour kicks off in Jackson. Then Mississippi rolls out its e program, and Ole Miss is set to establish the Center for Evidence-Based Policing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Freedom Ride for Voting Rights Tour launched from Mississippi Saturday with a rally in downtown Jackson. The campaign, organized by Black Voters Matter and other activist organizations, aims to raise awareness around voting rights issues throughout the country. It'll make stops in several southern cities this week before arriving in Washington, D.C. Cliff Albright is the co-founder of Black Voters Matter. He spoke with MPB's Kobe Vance at the Jackson Rally.
1: So the purpose of the Freedom Ride, and, and it is kind of like a reverse Freedom Ride, because we're paying tribute to the 1961 Freedom Ride, where organizers, activists were going, students, young people, were going from D.C. to the South in order to test the laws around, or the Supreme Court decision around um, segregation and public accommodation on, the, on the interstate travel. And so this is the 60th anniversary, literally when we announced it. We announced it on the day that was the first day of the Freedom Ride last month. So we... We're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is to pay tribute to that history, right? And at each stop along the way, and we're stopping in 10 cities on the way or nine cities on the way to D.C., and at each stop on the way, we're we're lifting up that history. We're honoring in some of those cities, we're honoring actual freedom riders that are still with us, right? So that's a big part of the, the purpose, to introduce that history to the country. As a way of inspiring people, right? To, to, to say, look, look at what we did then. What are we going to do now in this moment that we're in this critical moment, right? When, when our voting rights are at stake and so many other issues are, are, are literally, this entire democracy, you know, with the, without hyperbole is at stake. And so we wanted to lift up that history as a way of informing but also inspiring. That's one objective. But the other concrete objective deals with the legislation itself, right? That as we're watching all these attacks on voting rights and all these states sweeping the country, 47 states, close to 400 different bills that what we recognize is we can't keep fighting it on a state-by-state basis. We need today, just like we need in 1965, federal legislation to try to deal with this and, and we have that legislation pending and it's actually passed the house in, in, in a couple of cases and we're waiting on action in the Senate and so we're doing this freedom ride so that in each state we can make that demand we can educate people about these bills because a lot of people don't understand them they don't know what the difference is they think that one can be replaced for the other and that's not the case so we're educating people about those bills and we're advocating and organized to put pressure on on Congress in order to get those bills passed. What do you see as the significance of you know using the uh, the reputation and the power of the or- original Freedom Ride campaign to
2: begin to continue that civil rights movement?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's important to us because again as students of the civil rights movement we know that that understanding that history gives you faith and hope that we can win this victory today, right? Like we got today people saying, well, you you don't have the votes to pass this bill. Well, the truth is we didn't have the votes in 1965 to pass the Voting Rights Act, but it happened because of the pressure of the organizing. So we're doing this very intentionally to pull on that history, to pull on the power of the freedom rides, to to provide a source of, of, of history and hope and inspiration as we continue the battle and the grassroots organizing that needs to take place today. And when that takes place, we know what the end result will be. We are going to win and get Pass the voting rights legislation that we need.
2: Y'all are beginning today here in Jackson, Mississippi, on Juneteenth—the first national, yes. e- the first ever nationally recognized Juneteenth. Yes. Uh, how are
1: you feeling? What are your thoughts? And. It's it's incredible because when we announced this, as you know, we didn't know that there was going to be the Juneteenth holiday legislation. And so there's this kind of perfect storm of the way that all this has come together. That's how we know that this is this is uh, uh, divine, if you will. That's how we know that there's something bigger going on with this to be able to launch in Jackson, the place where so many of the Freedom Riders were arrested trying to get to New Orleans. Jackson is the launch point, the official launch point for this, for this Freedom Ride on Juneteenth just means the world to us. And we believe with a start like that, there's no place to go but victory.
0: Throughout the day, organizers expressed a similar sense of clarity and shared purpose. Mamie Cunningham is a civil rights activist from Oklahoma. She said the energy of the rally felt historic.
3: This is the first time I've seen a kickoff movement like this since uh, we worked with Fannie Lou Hamer in 1964. I think it's the beginning of something great.
2: So you got a chance to work with Fannie Lou Hamer? I did. I was a student. Uh, What what was that experience like?
3: Well, it was just a group of students who worked with uh, Bob Moses and Stokely Carmichael and uh, Dave Dennis and all those people that came to Mississippi. I didn't have a permanent role, but I, I did drop out of college that year. I was, I was a freshman, and uh, I did get a chance to get on the bus. I didn't have no position, but I got a chance to ride the bus to Atlantic City in 1964 as a student.
2: What is that? Looking back on that, and then looking at you know how, what things are going like today, how, how do you reflect on it, and then how, what would you like to see going forward using that same energy?
3: Well, to me, it's like I'm on a treadmill, and I'm right back where I started. I mean, why should we be back here today talking about a voting rights bill when it was passed in 1965 and had this dramatic experience in 1964 Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act in 1965, and we're still fighting for voting rights. So I, I don't see—I mean, I know there's progress, Every time, I feel that every time we make a step forward, we get stepped back maybe two or three times compared with what we go forward with.
0: The Freedom Ride for Voting Rights Tour stops in Atlanta later today. Coming up, EWIC modernizes a Mississippi social welfare program. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.
0: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. New in Mississippi this month is eWIC, a federally mandated modernization of the state's WIC system. WIC, which stands for Women, Infants, and Children, is a nutrition assistance program for pregnant and nursing women, as well as kids under the age of five. Diana Hargrove is director of Mississippi's WIC. She tells our Desiree Fraser how EWIC works.
4: Up until this year, participants would have to go to a WIC food center to pick up their WIC benefits, which is food. But now with the EWIC cards, they will be able to go to authorized grocery stores or pharmacies for the medical formula to get their WIC benefits.
5: What will be some items that people can buy with the WIC card?
4: Low-fat milk, cereal, yogurt, 100% juice, fruit juice, eggs, cheese, peanut butter, beans, whole wheat bread,
5: Okay. That's quite a bit. Okay. Yes. Um, so
4: every WIC participant isn't eligible to get all of those items. It depends on what category you fall into. A child age one to five is going to be different, obviously, than a pregnant woman. So the food package varies depending on what category.
5: How do you determine what grocery stores will accept it? How did you
4: go about that process? There's a whole authorization process. Last year in 2020, we opened up grocery stores statewide the opportunity to apply to be a WIC-authorized vendor. We closed out that process November 30th for stores to apply, and then there's a, a lot of paperwork they have to turn in. And once they submitted all the paperwork and the, the background necessary background checks and everything were completed, Then they sign a vendor agreement and then they have to their point of sale system has to be certified to show that it can accept an eWIC a WIC transaction.
5: Who is eligible for this WIC program?
4: There is, you know, income eligibility that they have to meet, as well as residency, they have to live in the state of Mississippi. And there has to be a health risk as defined by USDA.
5: What is the importance of this program to Mississippians?
4: One of the things that's important about the WIC program, it provides not only nutritious food, but it's the nutrition education that goes along with it. We really try to emphasize for existence for infants. We really do promote breastfeeding. We feel that breastfeeding is the gold standard, but we understand all women are not going to be able to or prefer to breastfeed. So we also propose other healthy, um, nutritious avenues, how to prepare the food, the quantities of food they should be serving. You know, what is a, a healthy lifestyle for the various stages of development?
5: How much money do recipients get?
4: They don't get money. It's not On the like Their The benefits are quantities of food. For an infant, it may be. 12 cans of formula for the 30-day benefit period, or for a child, it may be 24 ounces of cereal. That's how the benefits are. It's not a dollar amount.
5: And so they go to the store, get the item, and then their card is swiped?
4: Yes, and it debits the amount, the quantities that they have for that 30-day benefit period. That's the way the WIC program has always been, though, in terms of the benefits. It's always been food and not a dollar amount. But they used to just go to the food center, and so they always got a food package, you know, depending on their category. And so there was a certain amount of items they could get.
5: Do you happen to know how many people take advantage of this program or eligible?
4: I think we have approximately 75,000 roughly participants, but we obviously have more, and participant means they have an active food vouchers, or in this case, an active card, but we have more people than that that are actually enrolled in the program. Every three months, they have to do a nutrition education class or online education in order to get their next three months of benefits. So sometimes people may get enrolled for a 12-month period, but they don't, I don't want to say renew their benefits, but after the three months, they may not do that nutrition education, therefore they don't get their next three months of benefits. So the enrollment is always higher than the actual number of participants. But we have at least 75,000 participants that take advantage of the program.
5: When did it start or has it started?
4: WIC or EWIC? EWIC. We started our pilot in February, and we completed statewide rollout June the 11th. And what that means is that all WIC clinics statewide are now issuing EWIC cards. When a participant comes in to recertify or for their nutrition education, they now get eWIC card. They don't get the three months worth of vouchers anymore. And that's being done statewide. And all the authorized stores are able to transact the eWIC cards.
5: Have you been able to figure out if it's running smoothly, if it's got hiccups?
4: It's it's running fairly smoothly. Of course, going to the grocery store to purchase the WIC benefits is new to our participants. They've never had to make a choice because whatever was in the food center obviously was a WIC approved product. So now they have to go to the store. They have to really pay attention to their shopping list that they get as well as the shopping guide that we provide them that that lists the WIC approved products. There's also shelf tags in the stores that indicate WIC approved foods. But, you know, shelf tags can shift around and sometimes people don't pay attention to the fact that just because it's a WIC approved item doesn't mean that's part of their food benefit. You know, it's it's a teaching training process, and as the more they do it, the more they'll get used to going to the grocery store. That's been the main challenge so far: is our participants just getting used to going to the grocery store and making the proper selection.
5: Thank you so much, Diane Hargrove,
0: director of the WIC program, for taking the time to speak with us about this.
4: Oh, you're welcome.
0: Coming up, the University of Mississippi launches the Center for Evidence-Based Policing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The University of Mississippi will soon be home to the Center for Evidence-Based Policing. That's thanks to a million dollar gift partially funded by actor Morgan Freeman, who lives in Tallahatchie County. Dr. Wesley Jennings, a professor of criminal justice and legal studies at Ole Miss, has been tapped to lead the new center. He joins to help he joins us to help understand what evidence-based policing means.
2: When we talk about evidence-based, it's the opposite of, just we've been doing it this way, you know, forever, so this is the way we do it, right, without necessarily a why or rationale or justification beyond just like, well, that's just what we've done in the past, right? So evidence-based, I mean, largely means drawing from the existing empirical peer-reviewed literature on what types of activities and practices and procedures in policing have been demonstrated to be effective in terms of reducing crime or improving police community relations, you know, or a host of other r- related topics. So it, it's drawn from the, from the scientific literature. Like there's been 10 studies on the practice of hotspots policing, for example. If eight of them say it's effective and two of them say it's not, then, of course, the balance of the scales, the evidence lends towards hotspots policing as opposed to let's just try this policing activity because our neighbor jurisdiction is doing it.
0: Is there generally a uniform system of training police officers and other law enforcement?
2: No, you do have a variability across jurisdictions, whether you know be a rural policing agency versus more of an urban area, because the idea that there's some kinds of trainings that might not necessarily apply or needs to be tailored given the actual size of the police agency the size of the jurisdiction itself so for example if there's a oh well we should do saturation patrol we're going to triple the number of officers driving around on this zone of the city that kind of policing might be more effective in you know urban large metropolitan environments but probably not so much in more rural environments when you have a larger jurisdiction to cover and you have a smaller number of officers right So that's what I'm referring to in terms of you could have some local contextual-based trainings or activities, you know, that that would be different. And then other types of trainings, there's not not a lot more of what I would consider universally adopted types of trainings beyond just the, the traditional basic trainings and the, you know, firearms recertifications.
0: Given all of those factors you just mentioned, what will the center do? To train officers, and you say not just in Mississippi but around the country. What will the focus be? How can this center make a difference in training of officers?
2: The types of training are still, you know, in development, but but certainly ones that I mentioned. The idea of you know de-escalation training, you know, would be one of the types of trainings offered. Also related to evidence-based policing activities such as geographic information systems gis type of activities where you can analyze the crime occurring in the jurisdiction we you know we can train law enforcement how to use and read these crime maps because the idea is that crime is generally not randomly distributed across you know a city or a you know or a county or a jurisdiction there are kind of hot spots or hot pockets of criminal activity. And beyond, beyond that, it's not just there's certain areas where crime is more frequent, there's certain areas where certain types of crimes are more frequent. So you might want to police Zone 1, which is more domestic violence-related assaults, differently than you would police Zone 2, which is more stranger-related assaults, for example. So, so that, that's another angle of the, of the type of, you know, evidence-based activities Uh, As well, also just built the center will be involved in conducting surveys, surveys of, you know, police officers, surveys, uh, surveys of community members on perceptions of police, police legitimacy, procedural justice related types of concepts in terms of interactions with, you know, with law enforcement and the community to see, you know, questions related to what the community expects of the police And then questions related to what the police think they should be doing, because you clearly have some overlap in what police are tasked to do and what the community, of course, asks of them or expects of them. But then you have discrepancies.
0: Actor Morgan Freeman and Ole Miss professor Linda Keena provided a substantial contribution to get this center going to establish this center. And Morgan Freeman had a very interesting comment, I thought. He talked about how sometimes he sees police officers and he goes up to them and he asks, how would you do your work if you didn't have a gun? Which suddenly shifts the focus from one point of view to another do you hope to address that question in this training
2: the only really annually required training for the majority of law enforcement agencies is this you know firearms recertification right and that's certainly important because obviously you know it's a, it's a deadly weapon but the idea that's the only required training or one of only a couple of things uh, it's clearly not comprehensive enough and it's not just the accuracy of the gun it's like trainings on using alternatives to deadly force, right? Police officers have a have an entire use of force continuum to consider when engaging with, you know, alleged suspects in the community. Like generally ranges from starting with verbal, right? So if the, if the citizen, you know, or suspect is not immediately deferring to the authority of the officer when they arrive on scene, you know, then they could they, they can and should use verbal, right? So that can include forceful language or yelling or whatnot. If the suspects yells, they can yell back, kind of idea, verbal and verbal. But then there's the next layer of the continuum is empty hand control techniques, you know, trying to just, you know, secure their arms behind them, hard hand control techniques. There's then, you know, a series of less than lethal types of options that many agencies have. And then obviously deadly force is all the way on the other end, of the spectrum, so the idea is to train the officers. To certainly, they're they're aware of the use of force continuum. They know what it is, but the idea is training them in tactics that hopefully keep them from ever getting to that last rung on the continuum of you know using the firearm for dead for deadly force to exact the the result or you know defuse the situation. Methods to deescalate and or methods to go through the use of force continuum try one first then try two then try three you know versus going from verbal to deadly force right now certainly there's certain types of situations that necessitate that by statute where if you know there's they they have to act with deadly force to, to you know to protect themselves and or members in the in the area but the idea in the event that it's it's not that and they're not actively arising on a you know arriving on a violent scene where somebody's brandishing weapons and a threat to themselves or others, then methods to engage in using the lower level types of use of force sure to, you know, result in compliance and to diffuse the situation and resolve it without having, you know, to to have a deadly outcome.
0: All right. Much to discuss here. I'm I'm going to wrap it up with Wesley Jennings. He is the University of Mississippi Chair and Professor of Criminal Justice and Legal Studies and will head the Center for Evidence-Based Policy and Reform. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennings.
2: You're absolutely welcome. Enjoy the conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.